um, in our last church, we had a Saturday night service, and uh, then two Sunday morning services, and and um, and Saturday nights was a, a much smaller crowd, and it was it was, we started for a few people that just couldn't, they worked on Sundays and couldn't go to church, and we thought, you know, it's not killing us to have this service, and so we did it, and um, you kind of find out it did just about kill us, but uh, but just to have the, uh, the service, I always enjoyed it. I really liked Saturday night service. In fact, I've said this before, and I don't really know for sure. It's hard for me to say this because I don't really know because I've, I've never done anything but be the pastor guy. But I think if, um, if, I went to, if I wasn't the pastor and I just went to a church in town, I think I would go to Saturday night services every now and then. I just, I liked that. I like there's something about just being relaxed and it doesn't feel the same as Sunday. I feel like sometimes we get into Sunday mode. You know what I'm saying? We get into church mode, and everybody acts different on Sunday mornings. I don't know if that's just me or whatever, but one of the things we used to do is uh, my boys were the musicians. We started them very young. Um, I think Isaac was like 10 or 11 when he started drumming, and, and, um, and Jonathan was about, about, about the same age when we started playing the bass and some things. And, and so I would do some things every now and then because I like to. I'm a musician. I like to do this and because um, I think sometimes people like this. I don't know, I didn't really ask, but, but uh, we would take worship songs, just whatever, the song, and completely change the uh, beat, the rhythm, and make it, make it like a different song. Same words, same progression, but uh, the arrangement is completely different. And uh, part of the deal I did that is so I could teach my boys how to be very adaptive musically and connect, but also try to teach them, and I don't know if this worked, I mean, we've talked about some of this stuff over the years, but to teach them how to worship one of the things that I think happens in today's mentality of worship is I, I, we had a youth pastor about the same time that I was also trying to teach him this stuff, and, um, and it was foreign to him, is he would listen to a CD of a worship song, and that's exactly the way it had to go. That drove me crazy. You know, if they do one verse, and then the, who cares if they do one verse in the course? You can do that verse 72 times. We're Pentecostal. And... Uh, and and, and just the idea of changing things up. So I would even do stuff like, um, like uh, Caribbean beats or Latin beats or things like that. And so it would also give me the ability to teach my boys how to uh, do different music and stuff like that. And that's not easy to do sometimes. But take a song you got in your head and completely change the progression. And, um, and, and we, we, the people in church really were liking it. And it was just different. And uh, we would do things like that and, and have a good time with it. So then one time this... This, this uh, lady, she'd been Christian maybe two or three months. It wasn't long at all, and she was sitting there on a Wednesday night. And I, and I'm, I, you know, I'm get, I get up to do this teaching, teaching like this, and I said, okay. And we had done something different with the song. And I said, and if you guys ever have any ideas or you just want to throw some things by us, um, just let me know. Because I, I'm very open to this. I'm, I like doing things like this. She raised her hand. She said, can we, like, request songs? I said, sure, of course you can request songs. And here's one of the traps I've fallen into over the years. What is the trap that I just fell into? That's, that's actually the answer. But the, the trap that I fell into is I assumed that we had a, 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 a mutual starting point for this conversation. Yeah, I assumed we're talking worship songs, right? Christian songs. Because I would even take songs off the radio um, there was some different uh, groups that were doing, like Mercy Me and, and um, the, the um, um, what is it? Um, oh, well, different groups. And uh, taking some of their songs and turning them into like worship songs. It's not hard to do. Uh, some, there's some great Christian songs that they can do some stuff with. And so we would do all kinds of different things. And different, but they were all Christian songs. They were worship songs. They were something like that. You know, and I would even take, you've, you've seen me do some of this around here. Well, I'll take an old hymn. And I'll change the progression of the hymn and stuff like that. Which, by the way, causes angst in my household. Do you know that? My wife doesn't like me to mess around with the hymns. That's not the way Jesus wrote those hymns. Right? I mean, when Jesus sat down and pinned um, how great thou art, he didn't expect you to be messing with it. Right? So, right. <laughs> slippery slope, slippery slope. Nip it. So, so, but, um, but the interesting thing is sometimes, and sometimes you know, you do a song and you're like, mm, we're never doing it like that again. 
You know, but sometimes you can really, you can sense that, wow, this, this really works in this arrangement and people can connect with it and stuff like that. So I asked in the service, anybody, if you ever have a request for us, so a lady raised her hand. She said, can I make a request? And I said, yes. She said, I would really like it if you guys would do Freebird one time. <laughs> I'm like, Leonard Skinner Freebird? <laughs> She's like, yeah. That's a beautiful song. <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, you know, we'll talk later. I'll, we'll get back with you because I had to explain to her. We're not just doing music up here. Even though I'm changing beats and styles and stuff like that, I'm not just doing music. Guys, what is our goal? Our goal is to connect with the Lord and to worship God and to, to give him our, our gifts. Now, changing the beats and the progressions and things like that, that's part of, of how, um, if you're not a musician, maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. But as a musician, that's an, another way that I can say, let's do this a little different. Let's worship it a little differently. This, let's, let's give this to God in a different sense, you know. Uh, nobody, wants, um, nobody wants the same old baked chicken every single night. Right? And now Allison's, now she's like, okay, now you're speaking to me. I got you. Jesus felt that. <laughs> you, you like it, you switch it up a little bit, right? You, you, want, you want variety, you want different things. Well, I believe God does too. I believe God likes variety. That's why I'll pick on sometimes. You guys heard me say this, the same thing, the same thing, but a different mentality. This is from what's going on in your mind and your heart. It's not the musical side. But every one of us here, we have what, are, what I call our go-to phrases of worship. We have our go-to. When you're worshiping, there's almost a guarantee I could take six months of time where you're in church or at home or, or in Bible study or whatever, and you're just worshiping God, you're talking to everyone. And I guarantee when it comes to worshiping and praising Him, you probably use the same five phrases. Most people do not use more than five different phrases. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay? So, so, so we can vet this a little bit. Somebody give me a phrase that's your go-to. Which, by the way, it's not bad. You having five phrases are not bad. But I think sometimes limited to that is just, it's routine, it's rote. Do something different. So, so what is something that, when you're worshiping, when you're praising, what is something that you say regularly to God? What's a word that you use normally when you're praising the Lord? Jesus? Okay. Hallelujah. Father God, my, that's, my wife does that when she's praying. Father God's her go-to. I say in Jesus' name and my wife gets upset at me because she's like, well, are, I, did, I thought you were finished. In Jesus' name doesn't mean I'm done. It means I'm saying this in the authority of Jesus. That doesn't mean I'm done. Amen. <laughs> so, uh, so what are some other things? What are some phrases that you use? And guys, this isn't bad. It's not bad to have a phrase. Christine, I love you, Lord. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with that phrase. It's a good phrase. But here's something interesting is some of you may not, never say the words, I love you, Lord. Christine may never say, Father God. You see what I'm saying? It's not... It's not it's not a good or bad. What it is is just you. But here's the cool thing. Just read through the book of Psalms. Read through all the different ways that David exalts the Lord. He was very creative. Very creative. Some of that, I think, is not just creativity. It's revelation. Now, follow me with this. This is where it should convict us a little bit. Is there's revelation that comes along with saying, Oh, I, I, this is who God is. Or, oh, I didn't, I've never thought about this. Praying through the names of Jesus. That's a powerful way to begin to understand worship better and go deeper in different concepts of worship is praying through the names of Jesus because you see more of Jesus than you've seen before. You may, you may see Jesus as the provider. Okay, but he's also the victor of all battles. That's one of his names too. Right? So when you begin to go through the different nature, that's a way to do that. Walking through Scripture in a prayerful mentality can help you see things differently and help you understand God in a much more powerful way. Just to see some really great revelation and go, oh, God, you're the God of whatever. Um, praying, I, I, I mentioned this before, different personalities are different, but um, I, I love to be out in the mountains and I love to bike through the mountains. One of the things about 
biking through the mountains is it's very, um, for me, it's very therapeutic, extremely therapeutic. And there's something about, um, you know, early in the morning and the, 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 there's, there's still, the ground's still moist and uh, there's leaves, and, but the leaves aren't crunchy, they're soft, you know, and there's the a little bit of mist, maybe a little bit of fog, like, wow, this morning. And, uh, and you're riding through this little trail and there's wildlife and so there's something about that that to me, I feel as close to God at those moments as almost any other moment. There's something about that. I don't know how to verbalize that. Well, if, that, if you like those kind of things too, take a walk through the mountains in the morning and pray. Worship God in the mountains. David said he did. Worship God in the mountains. David said that he would lay in his bed at night and look up to the stars of heaven and worship him, in the star, this, worship him while looking at the stars in the heavens. Now, for some of you, maybe. You may have to do something like tear a hole in your roof to get to that mentality. But you understand, David was looking up and seeing the sky when he was worshiping. Little things like that that just make us see God differently or bigger. Or, uh, or make a list of the things that you know that God has done and just begin to thank him down through those lists. And you'll be amazed at how you'll worship him differently. It'll be broader, deeper. Because he's very big and we're very limited. That's, why, that's the only reason I'm saying is we're so limited. This is the way we look at things. This is the way we look at everything from, you, you have a specific style of music. Like you have a specific style of worship. You have a specific style of church. You have a specific Bible that you use. And you can go down through the list, and all these different things are not bad within themselves, but at the end of the day, you can actually lock yourself into things. Um, somebody was asking me, I don't think it was, I don't, was it, it was it on a Wednesday night a couple weeks ago we were talking about the different versions of the Bible? Did we talk about that? Okay, then it was in some other setting where somebody asked me this question. And we were talking about, um, oh, it was at one of the journeys. We were talking about translations and things, and somebody asked me, well, um, is the message a good translation to study out of? Well, that's not the right way to ask that question. Because the message isn't a translation. It's a paraphrase. It is a great paraphrase. But it's a paraphrase. It's not a translation. So Eugene Peterson basically sat down and said, this is what I think it says. And then he wrote it down. That's it's a paraphrase, like the old Living Bible was. You guys remember the Living Bible? Not what I use now, the New Living, but back in the 60s, the Living Bible was really one of the, it was the first Bible I ever saw that just said it in English. Okay, but it wasn't a translation, it was a paraphrase. So, so studying out of those are good for insight, but you're going to miss some things when it comes to actually what Scripture says because it's not a translation. Right? So they said, is the message a good translation to study by? Well, it's not translation, so you can study by it, but at the end of the day, you're going to make some theological mistakes if that's a study guide Bible, study Bible. Whereas a translation, you're not going to make the theological mistakes, but maybe it won't be as um, insightful for you. Right? That's why I think the two best versions out there right now are the ESV and the New Living Translation. Um, Hands down, they're, in, they're translated better than the other translations, okay? Does anybody want me to take a few minutes and explain why, or does that matter? Do one, ESV, English Standard Version, and the New Living Translation, which the one that we use, well, the New Living Translation now is called the second edition because the first one had some mistakes. So, okay, I'll explain that. The ESV and the New Living, they started with some basic starting points that some of the other translations like the NAS and the NIV and some of those didn't use, okay? Now, you know, those get picked on a lot. NAS, or NIV gets picked on the most, I guess. Nasty, incomplete version, you know, all those different kind of things. All right, here's the thing. They're all legitimate translations. They all have mistakes. There's all some little things about them that can be a little off or whatever the case is. The reason that I like the New Living and the ESV more than some of the other translations, including King James, is because their starting point was better than the King James, the NIV, NAS, and some of those, okay? The starting point for the ESV, specifically, and then predominantly for the New Living Translation, was the Greek Septuagint, right? The Greek Septuagint is the most accurate original copies that we have on record today. Some groups use the Mesotoric texts, there's, there's some words in there that are right, and I didn't use them. So uh, they use a different, it's a translation 
that was used early for things like the Baker's Bible, which was used to translate the King James and some of those kind of things. And they, and they made some mistakes in the process because the, that version had had some actual errors that were actually designed errors. They were, in, they were uh, purposeful errors, okay, for two basic reasons. Anybody know what the two basic reasons that they actually made purposeful changes in some of the, uh, tr- that, that, that original translation that we get where the King James came from, okay? King James is one of the more in- in- incorrect translations that there is in, in certain aspects, okay? There was two reasons why some of the pe- people that translated the text that originally became the translation for the King James, they made two purposeful mindset changes. The first one was a, uh, a misogynistic mentality, okay? Patriarchal influence in the translators and things like that. What do I mean by that? They actually made sure that some texts that were um, either gender neutral or specifically referred to women in a certain way, they changed them so that they could be male dominated mentalities, okay? They didn't exist in the original scripture, didn't exist in the Greek Septuagint, but some of those translations, they changed them so that they would be more male-focused rather than female-focused, okay? I can give you some very simple examples. Uh, In the New Testament, where we're talking about um, the role of deacons, when Paul is talking to Timothy, and he talks about role of deacons, okay? In King James, it talks about the deacon, and then it talks about what? In King James, it talks about the wives of deacons, okay? But uh, that's not actually what the text originally said. It said deacon and deaconess. Male deacon, female deacon. So for centuries, churches didn't have female deacons because there wasn't a place in Scripture for it, although the original texts had them in there. But some of the earlier translators, a few hundred years um, after uh, Jesus, when they were putting the canon together and some things, they made some translations, and they made it more male-dominant rather than what it actually originally said. Okay? So that's one of the things, that's one of the major ones. And then the other major one is, is some of the... Um, Jewish rabbis at that time did not like how well, and this is Old Testament and New Testament, how well the scriptures prophesied about Jesus. Okay? So they just kind of tweaked some of the timelines and things. That's why when the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, and we realized the Dead Sea Scrolls actually agreed with the Greek Septuagint on a lot of the stuff, we realized Well, they kind of knew it before that, but they realized somebody actually messed with some of these timelines and stuff in Scripture and dates and stuff like that. And when they'd gone back and unpacked them, they realized that the Greek Septuagint never changed these things, that the timelines in the Greek Septuagint all match up to what they're supposed to be, but that some of the mess or, yes, Mesoretic texts had been changed. Okay? They didn't change the theology, but they changed timelines and things like that. Which, here's the deal with me. If you change timelines, you're messing with theology too. Because, first, it's just the Bible. Secondly, these are prophecies about Jesus. But the Jewish rabbis at the time were like, no, Jesus fits them too well. We'll fix them. That's literally what they did. Okay? So, that's why I like ESV and the New Living is because they go back to the original Greek Septuagint, which is the most accurate that we have. Instead of taking from other things, like the King James took for something called the Baker's Bible. They translated predominantly off of the Baker's Bible. Well, the Baker's Bible had already had some of these uh, incorrect changes in there. Okay? And then they also added, because it was such a male-dominant uh, focused society, they actually changed some of the more uh, um, focus on, on um, women and stuff like that. So, all right? Okay, so that's just some of the questions I get sometimes. All right, <clears throat> Let me, let's go to Matthew chapter 5. Guys, this is going to be a little difficult, and I'm doing this off of um, what I was talking about last week with connection, communication, and correction in the context of family and stuff like that, and then also jumping ahead, because I know what I'm speaking about this weekend having to do with marriage. Um, 
I'm going to do this a little differently this weekend. Normally when I talk about marriage, I talk about um, how to have a good marriage or healthy marriage or here's some things that will help your marriage or whatever the case is. Uh, This weekend I'm not doing that. I'm talking about why is there marriage? Why is there such a thing? Why did God create it, design it? And I'll say this again this weekend, but you guys know, so many times society will say, well, that's a man-made institution. Marriage is not a man-made institution. That's a God-made institution. God made it. In fact, it was the first institution ever created. It came before the church. Marriage came before the church. Came before anything. Right? Came before government. Came before anything. That's why, that's why I get so frustrated when people try to have the conversation, can you have gay marriage and stuff like that? What you're actually asking is, can you have a marriage that is ratified? Beep, beep. Can you, can you have a... Uh, Good to have you, hon. Can you have a marriage that the government recognizes? Well, here's been my problem with that philosophy from the very beginning. When I got married to Linda, it doesn't matter whether the government recognizes it or not. That's a covenant between me and God. Why, why does it matter if the government recognizes my marriage? There's only one reason. Benefits. Taxes. Earned income credit, things like that. That's the only reason why it matters whether the government recognizes it or not. And that's where our problem came is when we gave it to the government in the first place. The government should never have had its fingers in marriage. It's a not, it has nothing to do with government. It's not government's business. It has nothing to do with government. Marriage is between me, Linda, and God. And we do this in front of the church. But it's between her and I and God. But we're always looking for a break. We're always looking for something. And so we wanted the government to start giving us benefits. And by the way, that's why the government started doing things like earned income credit. You know that. To make more people file their taxes. That's the only reason. That's the reason they did it. So more people would file their taxes. Right? So then we say, well, can you have gay marriage? Guys, there, can't, there is no such thing. It doesn't, mar- the definition of marriage cannot include a male and a male and a female and a female. It can't include it. The reason that the church gets caught up in the conversation is because we gave marriage to the government so long ago that now we think the government decides who gets married or not. There's the problem. You can, you can have, have marriage to fence posts. Who cares? Marry a rabbit. Who cares? Literally, I'm not joking about it. Who cares? If somebody wants to come up with some stupid idea that says this is how we're going to do something, you can do whatever. Whatever. The fact that the government says we're going to give you credit for that, that's because our government hasn't had God in it in forever. Our government's doing something that sinful, ungodly governments do. The fact that the church gets all crazy about this is because we lost the conversation 200 years ago when we gave up the, the, the right to have the conversation. Is marriage between a man and a man? It can never be. The, it, there's not a place for it. Any more than I can marry that chair. Now that doesn't mean that I can't say, well, I would like to marry that chair. And, and somebody like Christine goes, I love that idea. Christine happens to be in the government. She'll give me credit for marrying that chair. Who cares? God didn't ask Christine, me, or the chair. But when I go before God, there's one way, and that's his way, because he created it. He designed it. You can't go outside the creator of this thing. You can't. So let's go to, um, <clears throat> where is it again? Matthew chapter 5. Now, again, guys, this, uh, we're going to unpack some stuff that no matter which way we do this, it's going to be uncomfortable. And there are some, there are some things in Scripture that are, that are to me, pretty interesting about this because we, we get caught up in, this is, okay, so Matthew chapter 5 is the Beatitudes. The first part of this is Beatitudes. Well, I think the actual, the whole thing is, is the Sermon on the Mount. Some people disagree with where all, does this all go together, like at the same moment in scriptural moment in history, or was this over like a week or two or whatever the case is. I think he did all this at the same time. I think Jesus just gets up, he's got all these people there, and he just begins with the Beatitudes, what we call the Beatitudes, and he just starts teaching. And I think he spends a few hours on the side of this mountain teaching. 
people are there, they're hungry, they're interested, and, um, and he loves them so much, he wants to give them some amazing truth. And so let's start, um, uh, let's start with verse, um, uh, 21, no, no, 27, let's start with verse 27, we're just going to skip, the other one's about anger, we'll, we'll do that at a different time, but let's, let's start at verse 27, okay, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, <laughs> uh, causes you to love, you, do you know what that means, even your good eye? Do anybody know what that means? You're dominant, not necessarily right eye. For you, it may be your right eye. Um, but it's your dominant eye. This is one of the things I figured out. The way, the way that I learned the, the, the process of this is um, uh, when I was trying to figure out which putter I wanted to buy uh, 15 years ago. And I'd gone to the store, and you know, they got all these putters, and they're doing all this stuff. And I would putt. I, there was a putter that I liked, really liked, and I wanted to buy this putter. And so I was practicing with the putter, and, I, and Linda was standing there with me, and I would make about six or five or six out of ten putts from like ten feet. Then I'd go to this other putter, and I'd make nine or ten in a row. Then I'd go set that back down, and I'd pick up the putter that I wanted. And I would put that, and I'd make four or five. Pick up the other putter, drain ten in a row. And Linda said, why don't you get this one that you're making the putts with? I'm like, because it's not how, I, this is, I like this style. She said, but you're not making them with that style. And then the guy come over and he says, do you know what um, red is, right eye dominant? Uh, do you know what that is? And I said, never heard of it. And he says, you have a specifically dominant eye. You just don't know which one it is, but you, there's a way to figure this out. Which eye is the most dominant eye that you have? That's okay. How do we figure it out? He said, let's do a simple thing. You may figure it out this quickly. It may take you a few more things, but this is the easiest way. He said, look at the putter. Look at the hole. Look back at the putter. Look at the hole, and he said, and then stop and look at the hole, and then close one eye at a time. Don't move your head. Don't move anything. Close one eye at a time and see if the hole moves. The one that it moves on is not your dominant eye. He said, do the same thing. Look down at the putter. Move the putter. Close one eye. If the putter moves, that eye that you close when the putter moves means that's not your dominant eye. The one it stays still on is the, your dominant eye. So when I started doing that, all of you in here are going. <laughs> you can't do it at something really distant. You have to almost kind of turn your head to the side and look at it and then do the other, and you'll realize either way you turn that the same eye is the dominant one. Okay. All right, so then he said, now you pick a putter that favors the dominant eye. Certain offsets, straight things, they actually will favor the dominant eye. So you've got to figure that out. It was the putter I'd been making all the putts with. All right? So that's, that's, um, that's kind of what he's talking about. They looked at it a little differently. They looked at it as good hand, good eye, that kind of stuff. Does that make sense? Not dominant. They literally thought it was good and evil. Like your, your hand that didn't work right was an evil hand. That's literally the way some groups looked at it. Okay, so, so if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. Now, here's something that's kind of interesting about this. I have never, ever heard anybody think that that's not metaphor. It is literal. That is, I believe it's literal. Now you say, well, Jesus wouldn't want you to gouge your eye out. Okay, I'm not going to disagree with that except for one thing. What is the most important thing for you? Yes. And if the only way you could get to heaven is without eyes, and here's the question, would it be worth it? And when we slow down enough to think about it, we go, well, Yeah. But then our brain kicks in and we go, but it would never need to be that extreme. Now, I agree with that, and I think this is what Jesus is saying too. I don't think Jesus is being metaphorical. I think he's being literal. But what he is saying is, 
if you can't do it without gouging your eye out, it's more important to gouge your eye out. But here's another idea. Try to figure out how you can do it with eyes. Isn't that what he's saying? Okay? So if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. This was a, this was a really good picture that I saw of this. was the, um, the uh, movie that Kirk Cameron made about uh, when he was caught in uh, pornography and those kind of things. Huh? Fireproof. Okay? He takes his computer out to the yard and beats it with a hammer, a bat, baseball bat, beats it with a bat. Now, I have literally had conversations with guys that I've said, okay, if you can't handle the computer, then do what Kirk Cameron did. Take it out in the yard and beat it with a bat. They say the same thing about this. That's not really, <clears throat> that was just for the movie. That's not reality. I have to have my computer. Exactly. That's the point of the whole thing is, okay, so let's go on both sides. Getting rid of your computer doesn't change you, okay? But I do know this from, from personal example. Sometimes you need to get rid of things to get control of that in your life, correct? Okay, so sometimes, I don't think sometimes, it's always literal, but you've got to figure out what the parameters are. So... Does it mean gouging your eye out? I would hope not. I would hope you could come to some better conclusions before you get to that place. Okay? But at the end of the day, what Jesus is saying is the most important thing is that you don't miss him for eternity. That's the most important thing. You could use all kinds of examples in your life right now. From, from what you have, what you use, uh, what you live in, what you drive, all different kinds of things. Are these things causing you to sin? My, my dad used to say this all the time. And um, it, it, it used to, I used to think he was crazy when he said this. But I, I, so I went to high school in the 80s, right? The big deal in the 80s for guys was long hair, right? I was, I was a heavy metal freak. I wanted, but when I say heavy metal, I mean like Journey, <laughs> stuff like that. I don't mean what they call heavy metal nowadays, it scares me. But, but you know, I, I was a rocker, right? I was a rocker. So I, I needed long hair, so I'd grow my hair up. I had long hair. And, um, and then every now and then my dad would say, okay, it's time for a haircut, your attitude's wrong. And then my mom would always, you know, be right there, and she'd, she'd always ch chime in. Yep, when your hair gets too long, your attitude gets bad. When you cut your hair, your attitude gets good. Like, those don't have anything to do with each other. My attitude and my hair. <laughs> All right? So did they have direct correlation? I used to always tell my mom, so you think I'm Samson? You think I'm Samson? Long hair but attitude instead of strength? And I, I never, by the way, let me, let me make sure that there's no confusion here. I never talked to my parents like that. I did not disrespect my parents, all right? This is a very important distinction. I talked about this before. I never, ever raised my voice to my parents. And if I would have rolled my eyes, my dad, I'm not kidding. I'm not saying this is okay, but my dad would have knocked me out. He would have hit me with his fist, Okay? If I would have gone, <coughs> the next thing is I'd have been like, where are these IVs plugged into me for? That, literally, the idea of doing those kinds, it just didn't exist, okay? So that's why when I see little kids now, and by the way, I didn't let my kids either, okay? I wasn't like that, but my kids didn't go, <coughs> and go stomping off to the room. Oh, no. And if my kids would ever slam their door, I'd have taken that door and thrown it in the backyard. You, you're not going to slam your door in my house. I bought that door. I bought that house. You can go sit in the garage, but you're not slamming your door. I mean, little things like that where, where kids go, oh, Mom, that drives me crazy. Parents, don't let your kids disrespect you like that. They're disrespecting God's authority in you when they do that. Don't let them do it. Stop them from doing that. You, it is more important that you teach them respect. It's more important. Okay, I'm not, that's not my point. So, so the, the, the idea of 
my hair and my attitude? Were they, were they directly connected? Not chemically. But I couldn't deny the fact that every time my parents cut my hair, I worked really hard to let, me, let them let me grow it again. Guess how I did that? I changed my attitude. And it seemed like the longer my hair got, the more I didn't care about that. And pretty soon, you know, I'm getting a little attitude about things and stuff, which, by the way, you would have thought I was a perfect kid if you saw it in today's society. But my parents knew. And uh, pretty soon, there goes my hair again. I remember the day that I went to boot camp. Uh, 1988, June 1988, I go to boot camp. Day after I graduate, literally graduate the next day, I'm on a bus. My dad's like, you know what? Your attitude's wrong, but I'm not going to cut your hair. You know why? They're going to take care of that for me. I was like, whatever. They, ee, they shaved it. It was bald. I was looking at, yesterday I was looking at a picture when I was in boot camp. If I had the picture right now and showed it to you, you would not recognize me. I could give you $1,000 and you would not recognize me. 160 guys, you would not pick me out. Guarantee. How many of you want to take that? Okay, so here's what we'll do. I'll give you $1,000 you can pick me out. You give me 20 if you can't. $20. Because I know, I've done this with people. They'll pick 10 other guys before they pick me. They, there, there's like this uh, Caribbean guy. He's kind of, he's not really dark, dark, but he's kind of, and they're like, is that you? I'm like, did you not even in the same people group? <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> so, here, so here's the reality of this, guys. At the end of the day, it's more important that you get to heaven than anything else. And we can put anything in that category. Well, I really like to go to movies. Okay, I'm not saying... Going to movies will keep you out of heaven. But what if they do? What if you can't control which ones you go to and which ones you don't? Wouldn't it be better not to go to any? Couldn't we do this down the line of just about anything in our life? Couldn't there be pretty much anything? That you say at some point, maybe. See, this is the thing. I'm not going to tell the whole story. This is part of it. But but, uh, the fall of 1988, I was in college. I'd gone to boot camp, gone to another school, and then I got to college, and God really began to work on me. I got saved that fall, and I wasn't a Christian, which is, you got, that's a prerequisite for getting saved, and uh, I, was, I, I got saved, and uh, over about a three-month time frame, God really spoke to me about what does it mean to really, get saved, really surrender to him, commit myself to him, am I all in, am I not all in? I went through a bunch of prayer and a bunch of stuff and scripture and I was in Kyle at the time and these leaders were speaking into my life and stuff so I'm praying one night and at that time I wanted to be a professional musician I was practicing um, my bass guitar hours a day six seven eight hours a day and um, and just as plain as day God said I want you to put music down the bass wasn't the only thing I played but that was the one I was doing studio work and stuff and so God said put the bass down don't but put musical instruments down don't play any musical instruments till I tell you again for some of you, you're like, so? Guys, that defined me. I can't tell you how much that defined me. That was me. Still is to a great extent, but very different nowadays. Um, defined me. I did not touch a musical instrument for over a year. Not once. Now you say, does that really matter? If this is, this is let me put it in the context. Of, if the bass guitar is going to keep you out of heaven, then don't ever touch a bass guitar. Right? Okay, but, but for some of you, are like, oh, that's easy because, all right, then maybe, then God's probably not going to ever ask you to put down a bass guitar if you don't play it, right? But there are things in your life that God may ask you, are you willing to give that to me? Are you willing to walk away from it? I've had this conversation with so many people over the years that immediately they say, well, God won't, won't do that, specifically like music and art and stuff like that, because God gave me that gift. He will never ask me to, to set it down and walk away from it. Really? Are there any biblical examples that would disagree with that? How about Abraham? I want you to sacrifice the most important thing to you, the biggest, greatest gift I've ever given you, something that you waited a hundred years for. I want you to sacrifice it to me. And we say, well, God would never ask me to do something like that. Okay, as long as you think he won't, he won't. 
because you're not where you need to be with him. If you, if you just say some things are off limits, then that's a whole area that you can't go to with God. And you're right, God will never ask you, but you will never have that depth of relationship because you've already made some things off limits. You've already made some things not discussable with God. So here's my question. Let's reverse engineer this. Is God really your God if there are whole categories you're not willing to talk to him about? He's not willing to have. Right? I've had this conversation with parents, not about sacrificing kids. <laughs> Good thing I've never had that conversation. But, but about giving their kids to God. I've had, I, I, I can name people right now over the years, there's about a dozen, that over the years God has called their children to some type of missions or something like that, and the parents fought it and fought it and fought it until they stifled it, and the kids are not missionaries today. And I can, and I can give you exact conversations where the kids were saying, um, and these are adult kids, by the way, saying, but God's called me to, and parents saying, you have no idea how to hear God's voice. You can't do that. God didn't call you to do that. God didn't call you to do that. What's the difference between that and Abraham saying, no, I'm not going to sacrifice my son? You know what the difference is? Abraham followed through and these parents aren't. That's the only difference. To say, God, that, that can't happen. I know somebody right now that, they, that even though they, they're married, they have a good marriage, they will both tell you that the, the daughter was supposed to be a missionary and the only reason she met and married her husband is because her parents wouldn't let her go on the mission field. Now, here would be some of my argument with that. When do you become your own person and follow God? Now, that's not always easy said as done, right? Especially when you're 17 or 18 and, and mom or dad are just, you know. But somewhere, somewhere you've got to do what God tells you. Well, that means everything. What if it means gouging your eye out? Okay, obviously, I'm not proposing that you gouge your eye out. And I don't think Jesus was either. I think he was saying, I, I, I do believe he's being literal, but I would think he was saying, I think there's probably some other ideas you can get to before there, but here is the truth of the extreme. Okay? Serving God is the most important part. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Right? Okay? Now, I do think that it would be very easy, I don't think you're being scripture irresponsible, to extrapolate this into the body of Christ, too. Okay? I just had this conversation in the last few weeks with somebody, and they were talking about influences in their life. Okay? Not, not necessarily like uh, church influences, but they were talking about actual blood family, but these are all supposedly Christians, whatever. And they were, and they were talking to me about the influences that their family has on them, and we were discussing this is not healthy. There's some unhealthiness going on here. If, if you cannot keep a consistent, healthy, understanding attitude and relationship with God because you're around these people, even if the argument is you could be stronger and be around these people, but if you can't, then, then separate yourself from those people. That's very simple. Okay? Separate yourself from people. If you get saved and your buddy for years is still going to be out there smoking pot and doing all this other stuff, there, ha there may be a time. Now, hopefully you try to witness to him. You're trying to get it. But there may be a time when you say, I've got to sever this relationship. One of the teachings that professional athletes go through when they first become part of a professional league, like football, basketball, baseball, or whatever the case is, is understanding which relationships in your life are healthy and which ones are not. And, and specifically, guys that come out of the gang mentality, and they eventually get to the pros, either through college or through whatever the case is, but they eventually get to the pros, sometimes they got to go back to these leeches that are this, these uh, relationships and say, you're not healthy for me. I'm in a different place in life. I can't be interacting with you. Because why? They're going to throw everything away so that they can keep this buddy. And that happens all the time. Okay? Now, in Christianity, in the mentality of Christianity, your, your goal should be, hey, I just found Jesus. We're best friends. You need Jesus too. Let's do this. But that doesn't always work that way. Sometimes they don't get it. So sometimes you have to say, wait a second, I got to cut off part of my body in this relationship because it's more important that I go on with Christ. It's just true. Okay? 
All right, anything about that before we move on? Anything stirring in your mind you want to say? Process. Anything? <clears throat> All right. Here's the second one. This one's even more difficult. You have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Because that is one of the most difficult in today's context. Now, at different times in history, it hasn't been as challenging culturally. But in today's context, this is a challenging one. And part of the reason is because over 60% of the church has been divorced and remarried. So what do we do with that? I mean, this is a tricky one, is it not? How do you get around it? How can you explain it away? I've heard a lot of guys try. How do you explain it away? How do you, what do you do with this? Okay? Um, unless she has been unfaithful. So we understand that uh, adultery changes uh, the way that the covenant is between two people. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? For, for Jesus to be the one that says, unless she has been unfaithful, that means the unfaithfulness changes the next few sentences. But assuming that there's no unfaithfulness, we have to go by those next uh, couple sentences. So, so what does the unfaithfulness do? There's a covenant thing. In fact, this is the way I'm going I'm to actually mention this a little bit this weekend. This is one of the things, this, this is why sexuality is such a big deal, and I don't think we process this. Guys, you, you've heard me talk about this, and I know I can say this till I'm blue in the face, but in today's culture, it's almost like you have to take it with a grain of salt because it can't just be the way it is, right? Having sex outside of marriage, either pre-marriage or adultery or whatever, having sex outside the covenant of marriage tears apart at the actual covenant of marriage. And here's another thing that it does, is it bonds you to that other person. This is the part we don't like in our today's society. It bonds you to that other person. There is a spiritual bonding, connecting that happens. It becomes a one mentality that happens according to Scripture. There's a spiritual thing that happens that you are connected with someone else. Okay? When there is a, when there is a covenant of marriage and you have sex outside of that, it tears at that covenant. All right? Um, which, which, according to the way Jesus says this, means that the, the, spiritual, um, the spiritual bonding is somehow changed or severed or something. Because according to this, he says, um, but I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she has been unfaithful, uh, causes her to commit adultery. In other words, if he just divorces his wife and his wife um, goes and, and uh, marries somebody else, that she commits adultery. That's what it says if you take that little statement, unless she has been unfaithful. The, the caveat that he throws in there, unless she has been unfaithful, changes the next part of the sentence. It means that she's not committing adultery if, if uh, she has been unfaithful, although the unfaithfulness is committing adultery. <laughs> right? You're like, oh, oh, thanks for clearing that up. That's so much better now. Right? There is, when there is adultery, there is a covenant breaking that happens there. Now, that doesn't mean you can't fix it. It doesn't say that, um, that um, uh, divorce or the separation of marriage from a marriage is an unforgivable sin. You can be forgiven for it, just like you can be forgiven of anything. But you still can't get away from the fact that it says, if you send her away, you're causing her to commit adultery, and if you marry someone else, you're also committing it. If, if you marry, anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. Okay? So here's the question that I have. What do we do with that? Okay, so you're saying that this is not gender specific. Okay, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. 
Um, <clears throat> I thought you were about to go down the road to, because it doesn't mention the women that maybe the rules are a little different. Now, you do have to be careful of this. Here's something that happens when we're looking at Scripture, and this is not what Tom was saying, but here's something that we do, is we'll take a statement from Scripture, add the cultural context in it, and say, so the cultural context therefore changes the overall picture when you bring it into context, except there's a problem with that. These words are in red. Jesus says it. He understands all cultures under all circumstances at any time in history. So if he says it, it doesn't matter what the cultural application is. You have to take what he said first. And then you figure out what that means within the culture, or does the culture speak to it any? But when Jesus says it, he says it. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so again, we're not getting off that easy. What do you do with this? Yeah, so, so the over, overarching thing is, is the God of grace is the one that's saying this. So, so we have to keep that in mind. Jesus is the forgiver. But the actual subject that he's talking about, he doesn't give a lot of wiggle room there. And this is, where, this is where one of those things that come into mind, and by the way, I don't have the answer for every single person with this, but I do say this to people regularly. Because I have people constantly that are going through different things, couples and situations and in the church, outside the church, probably even more outside the church, definitely more outside the church than even in the church. But people that will come to me and say, hey, we want to counsel and talk about this. Um, our marriage is not going to make it. We're not, we don't want to, we don't think we're going to stay married. We don't want to stay married. We're looking to separate and do all these kind of things. And here's where I begin with on every single one of these is most of the time, there's not a legitimate reason for people to get divorced. There just isn't. Most of the time. And there's no way we can get around that. It's, that's just reality. Now, I know that doesn't make me uh, normal in today's society, in, in ministry world or whatever. I'm the anomaly when I say that. I understand that. But most times, we're not, we're, God's not okay with us getting divorced. He's just not. We just are doing it. And we'll try to figure it out later. We'll just, I'm going to get divorced, and then we'll figure it out later. Except for the fact that God's just not okay with it. Scripture is very clear. God hates divorce, and we come up with all kinds of reasons that society, again, we're going back to the same government we gave this to and saying, can I get divorced or do whatever the case is? But God's not actually okay with it. Armando? That's a good question. Why, why do you think, Shauna? That was the first thing. He was trying to fix a much bigger problem than just married. He was talking about uh, m marrying people that are worshiping other gods and all kinds. I mean, there was a lot more to it. But there's the, the simple answer to this. There's actually a much simpler answer than that. Yeah. He didn't want to get beat up. He didn't want to get voted out. He didn't want to be disliked. He didn't, all the same. And that's why Jesus says, when he says, you've heard, another, another gospel says, Moses said. And Jesus said, oh, and by the way, Moses was wrong. That's what he said.
Yes. Correct. Yes. That's the simple thing that Jesus is saying. The covenant that you have made goes way beyond an agreement that a human being can give you to get out of this covenant. Because you didn't make the covenant with Moses. You didn't make the covenant with the government. You didn't make the covenant with, with any human. You made the covenant with God first. And this is something we don't even think about in marriage is when I got married to Linda, the covenant that I made was first with God, not with Linda. This is a God covenant first. Then it's with Linda. So this is the way that I explain it usually is. This is, this is why sex outside of marriage is so bad, is when you have sex outside of marriage. What, what does sex do within the context of marriage? It ratifies or consummates the marriage, correct? It binds you together. But the covenant is actually between you and God. So what happens is God writes his covenant, and you sign your name by having sex. Okay? Um, what happens when you have sex outside of marriage is you, there's a blank covenant and you sign by having sex, but the covenant is to be filled in later. Since it's not a God covenant, guess who fills it in? Satan. And he messes with you. And he puts things in this covenant and changes lines and does stuff. And in a spiritual sense, he, he puts things into your, your mind, your spirit, and your relationship that literally will mess with you for years and years into your marriage. Now, one of the ways that you can do that is you go back over this covenant and say, God, we ask you to forgive us of these things. We ask you to wash us. We ask you to do And God is forgiving. He can do this. He can cover. But here's what thing is, is a lot of marriages never do that. They have sex with whoever. Then eventually get married to, to these two people get married. They've had sex with other people, all this other stuff. There's all those other spiritual co- covenants and all these other things that come in. And just because you marry someone else doesn't mean that those other covenants are done away with. You signed your name on every one of these covenants. And then Satan gets to fill the blanks in, do all this other kind of stuff, and it messes with you for years. You just got to get it in your mind and your spirit. And according to this, guys, that's why this stuff is so important. Because Satan uses this stuff against us. And then I counsel with people 20 years later, they're still dealing with the same things. And when you trace this stuff back, oftentimes it has to do with attitudes and rebellion and sin. They've been Christians for 20 years, serving God. But Satan still has that toehold in their marriage, in their life, in their relationship, and, and messes with their family and all kinds of other stuff because they gave it to him, and they've never get, gone back and said, God, take this. Take this. This relationship, this sexuality, this stuff, take this because it, I, I, I gave it up in a wrong way back in the day. Instead of saying, God, I, and, and by the way, this has to do with even married couples. This is why I, when I'm counseling with pre-married couples, I tell them, um, the last four, five, six weeks of your engagement, don't be alone with each other. Why? Because you're getting married anyway. Your brain will tell you, well, we're getting married anyway. Right? We're getting married anyway, and that's when you're going to make your mistake. And guess what? Even if you're going to get married and you're not yet, you still just gave Satan a foothold in your relationship. Even if that's the only person you've ever had sex with, you gave Satan a foothold. You need to give that back to the Lord. So even in the concept of divorce and remarriage and all this other stuff, guys, this is where I think you have to go back to the Lord and say, God, I've made a mistake I need you to cleanse me. I need you to forgive me. I need you to wash me and all this. But we just assume, well, if, if I'll just deal with it later, it's not that simple. It's not that simple. I'm going past time, so I got to go. Um, I got to stop. You got to go. So, so guys, um, we can unpack some more of this in the next few weeks. But to really look at it and say, okay, God, I, there's some things I've never thought about, but I, I didn't do this the way I was supposed to. And, and Jesus doesn't play around with this stuff. So what do we do? We give it to God. Right, God, we come before you. And uh, Lord, I pray for every single marriage in our church. God, the things I'm going to talk about this weekend, I pray for our marriages. Lord, I think Satan just causes havoc in our marriages. Lord, I believe that so often we are complicit in this. 
Lord, forgive us. Wash us clean. Cover our marriages with your blood. Cover our minds and our hearts with your blood. Cover what we're looking at, our eyes, with your blood. Cover what we're reaching out for, what we're touching with, our, with, our, with your blood. Cover us with your blood, Lord God, so that our minds are clean, our, our, our visual is clean, our thoughts are clean, our hearts clean, our, our, our physicalness is clean before you. God, help us not to buy into just whatever the world says but to live for you in all circumstances in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. God, I pray for this weekend that we can really see some things about marriage. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. I didn't get to unpack this totally, so let me make sure I leave you with this. God's grace is sufficient. Don't, don't go down the road that I said and leave it at condemnation. God's grace is sufficient. But I think we got to take some of this stuff seriously, and we're not. But God's grace is sufficient. All right, we will see you guys. Um, is men's breakfast this Saturday?